This is the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 25, the third of several parts on Canaan. Last week, I finished the history of Canaan as found in the Bible. This week, I'm beginning the history of that people and region as found through archaeological evidence. But first, I'll set the stage with the people before the Canaanites and the history of the sources of the documents that their history is drawn from. So let's get started. Before starting on the Canaanites proper, a little more on the environmental history of the era, as well as the source of the history from an archaeological perspective. There is a theory of, well let's call it an event, that led to the desertification of the area of Canaan, as well as much of North Africa. This theory is known as the 5.9 Kilo Year Event, which was one of the most intense desertification changes during what is known as the Holocene Epoch. It is thought to have occurred around 3900 BC and ended what is now known as the Neolithic Subluvial. The Neolithic Subluvial was an extended period that lasted from about 7000 BC to about 3500 BC and consisted of wet and rainy conditions. It was followed by a much drier period, probably initiating the most recent desiccation of the Sahara. Now I realize that these dates do not line up with what is in Genesis, and I am certainly not claiming that they are correct, but these are merely ideas from the scientific community. The 5.9 kilo year event is thought to have triggered migration to river valleys, such as from central North Africa to the Nile which eventually led to the emergence of the first complex, highly organized, state-level societies in the 4th millennium BC. Martin Clausen, currently a professor of meteorology at the University of Hamburg, suggested rapid desertification triggered by a climate cooling event. He identified a North Atlantic cooling episode about 5,900 years ago, which indicated the existence of a quasi-periodic cycle of Atlantic cooling events occurring around every 1,500 years, give or take 500 years. For some reason, all the earlier arid events were followed by recovery, as is demonstrated by the evidence of humid conditions in the Sahara between 10,000 and 6,000 years ago. However, it appears that the 5.9 kilo year event was followed by a partial recovery at best with accelerated drying in the millennium that followed. Also, Maru Krimashi of the University of Milan describes evidence of rapid aridification in southwestern Libya in the form of increased wind-driven erosion, sand incursions, and the collapse of the roofs of geologic rock shelters. The 5.9 kilo-year event was also recorded as an abnormally cold event in China. In the eastern Arabian Peninsula, The 5.9 kilo year event may have contributed to an increase in relatively greater social complexity and corresponded to an end of the local Ubaid period, just before the rise of the Sumerians. But it didn't just impact the Sumerians. It may also have led to the formation of Canaanite society. Canaanite culture apparently developed on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean from the earlier Gosseline Chocolitic culture. Gosseline refers to both a culture and an archaeological stage dating to the Middle Chocolitic period in the southern Levant, usually pegged from about 3800 to 3350 BC. It is thought to have been centered around Telelite Gasul, hence the name. 
This site is located in the Jordan Valley near the Dead Sea in the modern-day country of Jordan and was excavated in the 1930s AD. The Gasoline Society was organized in the small villages of mixed farming peoples and migrated southward from modern-day Syria into what is now Jordan and Israel. Their houses were typically trapezoid-shaped, built with mud brick, and covered with interesting multicolored wall paintings. Their pottery was highly elaborate, including footed bowls and horn-shaped drinking goblets. These goblets are thought to indicate the growth of grapes and fermentation of wine. The Gosselines were a chocolatic culture, essentially indicating that they smelted bronze. Gosseline culture has been identified at numerous other places in what is today southern Israel, especially in the region of Beersheba. Beersheba is the largest city in the Negev desert of southern Israel. I'll probably cover it in more depth after Canaan. The Gosseline culture is thought to have traded with both the Amartane of southern Egypt and the early Minoans in Crete. Now this belief stems from the similarity of their vases with both of these other cultures. More recently, it has come to be associated with a regional cultural phenomenon, as defined by sets of artifacts in what is today central and southern Israel, the West Bank, in the central area of western Jordan. All of these areas are either well-watered or semi-arid zones. The Gosselines followed a late Neolithic period and was succeeded by an early Bronze period. Little is understood from the transition from the latest Chocolatic to the early Bronze period, but there was apparently some transition of ceramic, flint shaping, and metallurgic technology, especially in the southern regions of the Levant. Attempting to establish the dates of the Gosseline depend on radiocarbon dating and suggests that the typical later Gosseline began sometime around the mid-5th millennium BC and ended around 3800 BC with the transition from Late Gosling to Early Bronze Age occurring sometime between around 3800 and 3500 BC. The Gosselines are thought to have pioneered the Mediterranean agricultural system typical of the Canaanite region, which was comprised of intensive subsidence agriculture and characterized by extensive grain growing, commercial wine and olive cultivation, and nomadic herding. Actually, the term for the herding is transhumanist pastoralism, which means that the herders took their livestock from one area to a different one, depending on the seasons. Now, keep in mind that inherent in the definition is that the herding followed a specific pattern, always going to the same lands to graze. Prior to the Gosselines, herders practiced what is called Circum-Arabian Nomadic Pastoral Complex, which is a very complicated way of saying a less defined wandering. Essentially, they were always chasing the shiniest green plants for the herds and not following a specific migration pattern. And that's the pre-Canaanite history, which leads to the actual Canaanites. But before starting that task, I'll give some background into the evidence that leads to the theories of their history, most of which, similar to the other peoples already covered, comes from discovered documents. First, there are what is known as the Elba Tablets, which were written between 2500 and 2200 BC. In these, there is a reference to the Lord of Ganana. These tablets were written in Semitic Ebalite and were found in the archives of Tel, Marduk, 
in northwestern Syria. The Lord of Gananas has been interpreted by some scholars to be the deity Dagon, and therefore the Lord of Canaan. If correct, this would suggest that the Ebalites knew of Canaan around 2500 BC. The tablets proved to be a treasure trove of information on Syria and Canaan in the early Bronze Age, and include the first known references to the Canaanites, the Ugarit and Lebanon. The contents of the tablets show that Elba was a major trade center. A main focus of the tablets was on economic records, specifically recording Elba's commercial and political relations with other cities in the Levant. There were also ledgers of the city's import and export activities. Among the more interesting items, these ledgers show that Elba produced a range of beers, including one that appears to be named after the city itself. And now you see that the craft brewery fad is nothing new. Elba was also the hub for a sophisticated trade network between city-states in northern Syria. This system grouped the region into a commercial society, which is clearly seen in the text. There were king lists for the city of Elba, royal ordinances, edicts, and treaties also on the tablets. The literary text included hymns, rituals, epics, and proverbs. Many tablets include both Sumerian and Ebalite inscriptions, with versions of basic bilingual word lists contrasting words in the two languages. Think of it as a translation text, a sort of Rosetta Stone. This structure has allowed modern scholars to clarify their understanding of the Sumerian language, which at that time, keep in mind, was a living language. Remember that until the discovery of the tablets, there were no bilingual dictionaries with Sumerian and other languages, leaving pronunciation and other phonetic aspects of the language uncertain. The only tablets at Elba that were written exclusively in Sumerian are a lexical list, probably for use in training scribes. The archives contain thousands of copybooks, lists for learning relevant jargon, and scratch pads for students therefore demonstrating that Elba was a major educational center specializing in the training of scribes. Shelved separately with the dictionaries, there were syllabaries of Sumerian words with their pronunciations in Ebalite. Think of syllabaries as a listing of the syllables of words, similar to a dictionary. They aid in understanding of a language. Without these tablets, our understanding of the history of the area would be incomprehensibly incomplete. Now, while researching and writing this episode, I intended to just touch on the history of Elba, but then I noticed something that made my heart sink, while at the same time making much of its history more real. That bit of information is that the Elba archaeological site is only 34 miles, or 55 kilometers, from Aleppo, Syria. And if you're listening to the podcast in real time, that city, Aleppo, is at the epicenter of the current ongoing Syrian civil war. Still uncertain of where it is? Ask Gary Johnson, as he received a not-so-polite introduction to the city. The history of Elba is too long for this episode, so I'll cover it next week. Think of that episode as a supplement to the history of Canaan. And with that, back to Canaan. Next, there are the Mari letters, written around 2000 B.C., these tablets were written in Akkadian and provide insight into the Akkadian kingdom, its customs, and the names of people who lived there during that time. 
In the archive, there are more than 3,000 letters, with other documents consisting of administrative, economic, and judicial text. The tablets, according to André Perret, a 20th century French archaeologist, quoting him, brought about a complete revision of the historical dating of the ancient Near East and provided more than 500 new place names, enough to redraw or even draw up the geographic map of the ancient world, end quote. Nearly all the tablets found were dated to the last 50 years of Mari's independence, around 1800 to 1750 BC. While the language of the text is Akkadian, the proper names and hints and syntax show that the common language Amari's inhabitants were most likely Northwestern Semitic. One of the tablets, a letter from Mutu Bissur to Shamshi Adad I of the old Assyrian Empire, was written around 1800 BC. It mentions the Canaanites as living in the area around Rahisum. Rahisum was located at a site that is currently on the border of Syria and Lebanon near Kadesh in the foothills of Mount Hebron. The Mari letters were found in 1973 in the ruins of Mari, an Assyrian outpost. Hence the name. Finally, at least for this episode, there are the Alalaka text. Alalaka was an ancient city-state on the Amuk River Valley of Turkey's Hete province. Just about as far south as you can go in Turkey, right on the border with Syria, it was occupied before 2000 BC, when the first palace was built, and likely destroyed in the 12th century BC, to never again be occupied. The city contained palaces, temples, private houses, and fortifications. Alalaka was founded by the Amorites during the Middle Bronze Age, with the first palace being built around 2000 BC, about the same time as the Third Dynasty of Ur. The written history of the site begins with the name Alakatum, with tablets from Mari in the 18th century BC, when the city was part of the kingdom of Yamhed, now known as Aleppo. Some of the tablets indicate that King Shum Epu sold the territory to his son-in-law Zimri Lim, King of Mari, but retained for himself some manner of control of the area. For the next couple of hundred of years, it would be granted some manner of independence, only to be brought back into the fold. This lasted until the 16th century BC. Then the record went dark for close to a century, finally resuming in the 15th century BC, when Idrimi, the son of the current king of Yamhad, may have fled his city for Emmer, traveled to Alaka, gained control of the city, and recognized as a vassal of its ruler. An inscription on a statue records Idrimi's journey claiming that after his family had been forced to flee Amar, he left them and joined the Haparu people in the land of Canaan. And because Canaan was mentioned is why he's covered in this episode. Continuing with his history, the Haparu recognized him as, and in their words, the son of their overlord, and they gathered around him. After living among them for seven years, he led his Haberu warriors in a successful attack by the sea on Alalaka, where he became king. However, the statue of him where this text is found was literally dug up at a soil level dating several centuries after the time in which he lived. As such, there has been much scholarly debate as to its accuracy. But regardless of when it was written, and what Idrimi's actual role was, 
the reference to Canaan stands. The statue is now held in the British Museum. I'll post a picture of it. You know where to look. The site was excavated by the British archaeologist Sir Leonard Woolley. Remember him? And he did his work there from 1937 to 1939, interrupted by World War II, and then restarted in 1946 and finished in 1949. His team discovered palaces, temples, private houses, and fortification walls, all located in 17 different archaeological levels, starting with the late Early Bronze Age, around 2200 BC, to the Late Bronze Age, around the 13th century BC. A team sponsored by the University of Chicago restarted surveys in the late 20th century, and excavations continue through today. Overall, at the site, about 500 cuneiform clay tablets were retrieved. The Akkadian text on the tablets consists primarily of judicial records, which record the ruling family's control over land and the income that followed. Also, there are administrative documents, which record the flow of commodities in and out of the palace. And with that, I'll wrap up this week. Join me next week when, like I mentioned earlier, I'll cover the history of Elba, but not just because it is found in the land of Canaan, but also because of what's happening there and the area around it today. That way, when you watch the news at night and you hear of Aleppo, you'll be able to place it in some sort of historical context. You don't want to miss the episode next week. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Also, go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.